Today's podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and many more, and you can make money from your podcasts. It's everything you need to do to make a podcast in one place. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for episode two of the Inspiring Growth Podcast, where we share stories of struggle that have led to growth, both personal and professional. I'm Mark P. Fisher, Chief Encourager with Inspiring Growth, and in the studio today with me is co-host Alyssa Wilkinson. Today's podcast is brought to you by Sackcloth and Ashes, beautiful blankets with a social heart. For every blanket you purchase, Sackcloth and Ashes donates a blanket to your local homeless shelter. Go to sackclothandashes.com. Now, today I invite you to drop into our conversation with William Paul Young. Paul wrote the controversial runaway New York Times bestseller, The Shack. And last year, The Shack actually became a successful Hollywood movie. Now, for me, while reading The Shack eight or nine years ago, I was experiencing my own great sadness. Now, for those of you who have read the book, you know what that term means. For those of you who haven't read the book, please get your copy. Paul's story of The Shack really, during that time, gifted me with this new language around suffering and goodness and, and pain. Shortly thereafter, Paul actually accepted a crazy invitation from us to speak for a week at a family camp we led, and it, it was during a beautiful sunset somewhere on the Chesapeake Bay that Paul, uh, my wife Lori, and I began a life-giving friendship. So, listen in to this fascinating conversation with Shack author William Paul Young. Okay, so Paul, for our listeners, Many will know that The Shack was a runaway hit. I mean, it was a New York Times bestseller. It was a major motion picture. And you said of the story, it's fiction, but true. Can you yeah. explain that? <laughs> Parables are true. They, they don't have to be real in terms of factual, but they're true. And The Shack is really a parable. It's a parable of how a man in the middle of loss deals with the character and nature of God. And, um, and also the process of the healing, the healing journey. So, you know, people ask me all the time, is it factual? And there, I mean, there's a lot in it that's autobiographical and everything else, but it is, it's a parable and parables are true. So I'm really comfortable saying that it's true. It's just not real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our broadcast is really designed to inspire growth in folks who've gone through struggle, who've gone through, who are going through disappointment, uh, who are dealing with sadnesses and pain. There's a story you told me one time that has, has set with me pretty deeply. And it was the story of losing your house. It's a great story and it frames the shack pretty well. Whenever I talk about the shack, I tell people two things. The 15 copies I made at Office Depot as a Christmas present did everything I ever wanted that book to do. All the smoke and mirrors, <laughs> all the smoke and mirror stuff is um, God's sense of humor. 
And um, the second thing is that everything that matters to me was in place before I wrote the book. And that mm. includes identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. Those were all in place before I wrote the book. So I've never looked at my work, creativity, the book, anything else to get identity or worth or value or significance or wow. security. So um, I write this story for my kids and make the 15 copies at Office Depot. That happens the year after I have finished an 11 year journey. My exposure happened in January 4th, 94. And it took me to the end of 2004 to get to the place where I was like, I turned a switch or I turned a corner and it wasn't out of nowhere. It was out of 11 years of hard work uh, that included therapy, included community building, included honesty, authenticity, included all kinds of things, right? Those 11 years are, are what the Shacks weekend is about. I took Mackenzie Allen Phillips, who is me, and I put him through a transformational journey in a weekend that took me 11 years to do. The 11, and, and that's, the 11 years was a series of confrontations with my inability to trust. Trust was the absolute core issue for me. I, I was sexually abused as a child. I was abused by the tribal culture I grew up in. I was abused in boarding school. And then I locked away, became a performance-oriented person, and didn't deal with it. Just adapted all the survival mechanisms that those of us who have been hurt this way do. And I was empowered by the fact that I'm actually smart and creative, although I would have never acknowledged that growing up because I just thought I was really good at faking people out, just a superb liar. And uh, even though I didn't want to be one, I felt that the core of my being was actually wretched and depraved and worthless, you know, that I was a piece of crap. So that was the underlying, and you know, sexual abuse will, will speak shame into the, into the corners of your soul. Yeah. I will find places to go build little homes in. I was a manipulator. I shaded the truth. And I, I was so good at language that I could find a way to justify it to myself, let alone someone else. Because we, we have a drive for certainty. Yeah. And the only way that we can figure out certainty is control. And, and that's why a relationship is opposed to certainty. Because when you enter a relationship, you enter a mystery. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you, and you lose control, you know, ask any married man. But the reality is, is that trust is what relationship is fundamentally built on. And it is on knowing, it is on seeing, it is on trust. And, and I think a whole lot of us who grew up in the church, uh, mine, modern evangelical fundamentalist holiness movement, I think a lot of us are attracted to religion because it doesn't require trust. It requires performance. As long as I know what I'm supposed to do, I don't actually have to trust God. And anyway, religion told me that you can't trust him anyway, that he is, you know, he may love you, but at the end of the day, he's going to judge you. And it's a, it's a conditional love. It's like, it's dependent on my ability to perform perfectly. So all of that goes into these 11 years of dismantling this and this journey was an issue of trust. And over those 11 years, it was like I was spiraling downwards into deeper recesses of my soul to find the fissures and the cracks of mistrust, you know, and the reasons why I didn't. So um, I can track my 11 years and go like, okay, so I started with these 
areas. And then it went deeper and then it went deeper and then it went deeper. And so the 11th year begins with running into probably one of the deepest, most pervasive idols of my life. That is things that I look to, to grant me certainty. And, uh, and this was the fear of financial insecurity. <laughs> you know, it took me 11 years to get to the place where I, where it was like, oh my gosh, it's money that I trust. You know, it, in God we trust, but it's on the coin, you know? So it's money that gives me a sense of certainty and security and identity and worth and value and significance and, you know, all that stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh. Well, here's how it happened. 2011 begins, not 2004, uh, 2000, 2004. And um, I know going, looking down the road of the year that we're in financial trouble. We'd invested in telecom, job things have gone sideways. Plus, plus, and let me be clear about this. Way back in the day when I made decisions independently of Kim, because I didn't want her to be worried, you know, that's self-referential incoherence. That's where you're saying, I don't want to deal with the relationship. I don't want to deal with that conversation. I don't want to deal with the feedback. This yeah. comes out in the shack. You remember that scene where Papa confronts Mackenzie and says, you are such a liar. And he's like, what? The intimation is, is that if he'd have been authentic and honest, Nan would have been there that weekend. But because he didn't want to deal with the fallout of the relationship, he lied to her. And he justified it by, oh, I'm, it's the paternal parental sense that men take over their spouses, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to make decisions because their spouses, oh, they want to protect their spouses. That's all BS, total mm -hmm. BS. It feels safer because the prisons we know feel safer than the freedom we don't. So yeah. it feels safer. It feels control. Um, lies give us that same sense. And they're wrong, you know. But, but we can use lying to gain a sense or shading the truth. I think, you know, there's no such thing as a white lie, really, you know. And, um, and by the way, I would lie to save someone's life. I would it's, it's not like even lying is the ultimate perf perfect goodness. In a world that's broken, there are some times where a lie will save lives. Yeah. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about manipulating relationships in order to save myself. And uh, uh, that's a whole different thing. So here comes 2004. I know we're in trouble. And up comes the fear. And so I, I do something that I, I had not done for a long time. And that was I went on a a fast. And I didn't know how long the fast was going to be, but I had two issues I, I was talking to God about. And a fast is not twisting God's arm through magic. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> well said. it's not, it's not a, uh, a hunger strike. It's not a hunger strike in order to twist God's arm. Right. Well and um, so like, he'll feel sorry for me and will answer me before I die. You know, it's a way to clear out space so that you can hear. Mm -hmm. And um, so I go on this and about five days into the second day, one of my issues with regard to one of my boys was solved, uh, resolved in the second day. So five days, I'm saying the same thing every day, five days. It's like, how come I've trusted you my whole life with our finances and we've been up and down and up and down and up and down? That's kind of how I'm approaching the whole conversation for five days. And it takes five days before the confrontation. And, um, you know, I think everybody hears the voice of God, but I think shame uh, disavows us from actually believing we do. You know, we think we have to hear God like somebody else or 
um, that God somehow doesn't know our language or really is not involved in our lives, you know. And, and I've learned to hear the voice that says to me things that I don't. <laughs> here, here's what I wanted God to say to me. Oh, Paul, man, I feel your pain. Let's go find some money. That's what I wanted. I wanted a quick fix. I didn't want to deal with the fear. Uh, I, I wanted a solution that would cover it back up or postpone the confrontation. But see, I've been doing this for 11 years and, and it's like postponing the confrontation, postponing the exposure is no solution at all. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, all right. The thing about God is that God is patience. <laughs> and that's like, all right, we're, we're, we're working this at your speed. Okay. So five days into this, I have this confrontation and I hear the voice of the Lord inside. I've never heard God speak audibly, but I have friends who have, and I totally believe them. God can speak audibly. Good grief. So uh, I hear this, Paul, you have never trusted me with your finances. What are you talking about? Even that piece of property that I hear you tell other people, God gave me this, you know, I hear you tell people that I gave it to you. I can't even get my hands on it. You know, every time that I try, you manipulate relationships and shade the truth and you, you will lie to save your ass. That's a, that's a quote. That's what I hear. That's an Old Testament quote. But, uh, <laughs> so that's what I hear. And I'm in, I, it, it absolutely shatters because I know it's true. See, and this is the, here's how uh, the self-referential incoherence things work. For five days, I've started a conversation with God after 10 years of processing stuff. And I am lying to myself for five days. By starting with, how come I've trusted you my whole life with anything, let alone finances? That's so flat out false. And yet for five days, I was convinced that I had a good argument. <laughs> you know, And now I get confronted. So the question is actually rooted in a lie. So the answer Always. is going to either not, I mean, the, we can't even get to the truth of an answer when the question is rooted in a lie. I Correct. I think that's so instructive yeah. for me, but please keep going. Well, well did, how you, many, did go you feel that that was a lie? Like when you were asking the question or did you like, no, believe no. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Heck no. No, I totally, I totally was self-deceived, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. And it was just a, it's just a deeper layer of self-deception that had come to the surface and it was finances that now set me up. Right. And uh, I think that, that money is one of the playgrounds of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, okay, this is where your idolatry is most clear. <laughs> you know? So here I am in this situation going like, oh, nah. now what do I do? What is the action of trust in this situation? That's what I've had to do over this 11 years, over this, the previous 10 years was when I ran into one of these fears is to go into the fear, not away from it. You know, not to try to cover up, try to postpone it. Like, okay, so what do I do with this? So how do I go into this? So, so by this time, over these 10 years, a number of things had changed in my life, including the presence of men in my life. And um, because most of the damage in my world came from men. And, um, but now I had a dozen guys that were my friends that I was with on a regular basis and I trusted and they're good guys. So I called them up one at a time, and three of them could have instantly written me a check and knocked me out of my financial situation, right? So talk about a, a temptation to manipulate again. So I called each one of them up, and I said this. 
I said, look, um, I know you care about my family. I know you love me. Here's our financial situation. And I laid it out. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we're looking at. And then I said to each one of them, please, please, please don't rescue me from this. Don't, don't do it. And, um, and that was not an easy thing to say, but it was directly a confrontation against my ability to manipulate and change things. So, so uh, I did give, I mean, I was, I did give God this little sliver of a way out, you know, I, I had to at least <laughs> manip manipulate a little bit. And that was, I said, so if God shows up as a burning bush or, as, you know, an angel with a big fire sword or something and tells you to get me out of this, fine. But if not, don't. So that was the beginning of 04. In the fall of 04, seven of those guys took a day off from work, unbeknownst to me, and they all showed up at the Clackamas County Courthouse in Oregon City to sit with me while the county auctioned off the house we'd lived in for 17 years. And then they took the house and then they took the cars and then they took pretty much every physical thing that we had. And the guys packed us up, moved us in a moving van to a, a little house on the middle of 500 acres of Christmas trees. And, uh, and we were there for about three months and then had to move into town because we didn't have the gas money to go from the 15 miles to get to the train so I could get to one of my three jobs. And I tell people, you know, we entered a season. The transition was rough. It was really hard because the confrontation with our scramble for certainty that is so connected to money, that's a hard addiction to break. But we entered a period of time that became one of the most joy-filled times of our lives and we had nothing. And we learned during this time that the opposite of more is enough. The opposite of more is enough. What does that look like? It looks like, oh my gosh, now that I can sit in this place and look back at my life, I was always surrounded by enough and never knew it because I always thought I needed more. And so op more and less are on the same scale, but more and enough are opposites. They are not even on the same scale. And so joy drops on us like a ton of bricks. My kids, Kim, we would tell you that, that the two and a half years we spent on the 900 square foot rental place on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham, Oregon, Kim got a job at the high school bakery. I'm working three jobs, we're paying stuff back. Some months we have $17 in the bank. Some months we have 35, but that was one of the best times of our lives. And it, and it really, that's, that's where I could walk over to the train and 2005 was the year I finally went, oh my gosh, I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. I have no secrets. I have no addictions and I'm the same person in every situation. And financially we have nothing and yet we have enough. Yeah. I was on the, on the train to one of those jobs that I wrote a story for my kids because I had nothing to give them for Christmas. Wrote a story, made 15 copies at Office Depot and went back to work. Who knew? Yeah. How did they respond to that gift? Ah, thanks, Dad. A book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How old were your kids? The youngest was 12 at the time. Okay. So a 13-year range. Four, four of them were in the home with us at the time. Two were in college on scholarships. And, we, <laughs> and it, was, it took them a while to read it, but they all did, and they all loved it. They all were impacted very differently by the book. 
and continue to be. I remember, Paul, I was asking you how you deal with the criticism of the book. And you opened up your email and you started reading this list of people who had read it and just were pouring their heart out to you on how they were connected with God in ways they'd never had before. Yeah. So the, the book is a gift in two different ways. One is for those people, which are the, the majority of people who read the shack are hugely impacted. Mm-hmm. Then there is a small group who read it and, it and it threatens them at one level or another. Then there are, there's a third group, I suppose, and, that's, and that, these are my people. They won't read it and are mad about it. You know, <laughs> and, and they won't read it and it threatens them. So the book has this twofold impact and that is it has reached into the into places that very few things have been able to penetrate inside Mm -hmm. the world of people who don't come from a faith background or i know i have a bunch of my friends who were given the book by atheists going like you need to read this you know and it's (laughs) it's like this makes way more sense to me than what you've been telling me that kind of stuff but in terms of people's sadnesses it's had a profound impact but here's the beauty None of us change when everything's status quo. We don't do it. We have to be agitated. And the book has done that. And you know how it did it. It's so sneaky. This is so brilliant. The Holy Spirit is such a redeeming genius. The book grabbed people in their heart before they could process it with their brain. So, so, you know, it starts with a loss, a tragic loss that any human being can identify with. And I'm so glad in retrospect that um, the the movement was toward this kind of loss, not cancer, which I thought about. I thought about, this is really intense. You know, I I don't know if we should go here, but because we went that deep, it picked up all these other losses, all this other great sadness, which cancer wouldn't have picked this up and people got impacted. So they're, they're struggling with the issue of Missy. Then they run into Papa and their heads engaged because they wanted to be inside that love, but they their theology didn't allow it. And so that's where some of the pushback came from. So, but here's the deal. How, how they do it is that this is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. So guaranteed yeah. that if you don't deal with it now, you are going to deal with it. Yeah. And, and so, and here's the beauty. An agitated person is an engaged person by virtue of their, uh, their involvement. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, so when somebody's mad about the book, if I'm not at risk and I'm not, you know, they don't know me yeah. and they don't know my history. They don't know my journey. They don't know my story. So I'm not at risk. So they're coming to tell me in the only language they know how about what matters to them. And my people are not good relational communicators, generally speaking. We, we tend to be addicted to certainty and we, we assassinate character when we feel trapped. And so we just, you know, we're like the ugly American in the book, you know, and we, we go to a foreign country and when we don't understand someone, we just raise our voice, you know, thinking that'll help. And this is the, the deal with people who are, who connect with something that challenges their paradigm. It's not fun for them. And I, and I know that because of my own history, when when somebody has confronted me or a situation has confronted me and challenged something that I thought was true. Um, Mm -hmm. That cognitive dissonance is essential to change. But for those of us who were taught like, 
oh no, this is all easy. And once you, you know, you, you love Jesus, everything is just like whew, obvious. <laughs> no, you're dealing with a relationship and mystery plus your own darkness and your own brokenness. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is a beautiful mess. So Paul, I'm, I'm thinking and reflecting on what you've just said about your own growth came through, through loss. It came through uncertainty. There's something else you have taught me over the years, and that is to ask good questions. Yeah. What do questions do? How, how has that landed on you so deeply? <sighs> if you look at Jesus, you know, and people asked him a ton of questions, and I think only two or three times did he ever respond to a question with an answer. He always responded with a question. Because a lot of times the first question is not the real question. You know, the first question is in the, in the head. And so he addresses something that is much deeper and profound than that. And um, if you just look through scripture and look at the questions that Jesus asked, especially in response to questions, it's quite a revelation. Good questions are guides. And, uh, and, and, and to ask them without then planning how you're going to respond to the apologetic argument, you know. Um, so many times you're involved in a conversation with someone and, and they're not listening to anything you're saying. They're, right. they're listening to their own head about what they're going to say next. Right. And, um, and a, a good question will challenge your paradigm. It will challenge something that you might hold sacred that might not be so sacred. Yeah. And, um, and, and usually if that happens, you are connected, you have connected your identity to your paradigm. There is something about uh, what you believe in this specific kind of thing that you're now, you're now afraid that if somebody challenges it, you'll lose your identity mm-hmm. as a Christian, as whatever, whatever, whatever. And um, so, yeah, good questions are, uh, there's a, a line in Eve where Eve says to John, choose your question. Well, one good question is worth a thousand answers, right? Because it really opens the world up. Answers are trying to narrow the world. Um, but one of the things I really love you to just talk a little bit about in your growth process about forgiveness, how has forgiveness shaped your growth? Um, it's been essential. Um, and let's, let's make a very clear distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. And okay. I think that that distinction is not made very well inside the, the Christian community. Mm-hmm. And as a result, Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is that women get enmeshed into marital relationships that are abusive in nature because they don't understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And um, forgiveness is incredibly powerful and it is a power that every single human being has. Uh, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain of unforgiveness. And if you look at the context of that passage, it's about forgiveness um, Peter has just said, how many times are we supposed to forgive? You know, and Jesus says 70 times seven, which is an infinite. And he says, that's impossible. And Jesus says, with, with God, with man, that's impossible. With God, all things are possible. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved and it'll be cast into the sea. So forgiveness is not dependent on the other. It is it is all about the power that you have to let someone go. And that's why I use in, in the shack, I use the, the figure of holding someone's throat. The people who hurt us, 
uh, oh, let me, let me approach it this way. I've been asked a number of times, why in the movie and why in the book you never see the perpetrator's face? And my answer is, you don't need a face for forgiveness. You need a face for reconciliation. You don't need a face for forgiveness because some of the people who hurt us are faceless. You know, we don't remember their faces and, and a lot of them don't care. And some of them are dead, you know? And so if I'm waiting for someone else to change or to alter their position so that I can forgive, then I don't understand forgiveness at all. Forgiveness is absolutely not dependent on another person's actions, you know, in terms of their response. I don't forgive in order to get anything. I forgive to become free from that which has stuck me, you know, and unforgiveness is like carrying around a corpse on your body of someone that you despise and letting it poison all your other relationships. And it's like, how long do you want to keep doing this? You know, how long do you want to drag that situation? And here's the problem. Sometimes we drag a corpse long enough that it becomes a comfort to us. It, yeah. becomes, it becomes a coat. It becomes something that, we're, that we don't know how to live without. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people who are stuck in unforgiveness. And it's like Jesus' question to them would be, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? Because a lot of people say, oh, I'm struggling with this or that or that. But they don't want to forgive. They don't, they don't want to let go of the bitterness. The bitterness has given them a sense of identity. You know, they've been hurt in a certain way. And that now is their, their significance. And, and uh, you know, we will take our prisons and we will put up all the nice wallpaper and we'll put on the pictures and we'll do everything, but it's a prison, yeah. you know, and we'll call it home. We'll call it refuge. Right? It's a comfort. Okay. So we, I know we only have a few more minutes and I, and okay. I was, uh, you've written several other books since then. So uh, let me just say about reconciliation quickly. Oh, please. Re reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust that needs a face. And the perpetrator needs to own what they've done. If they don't own what they've done, reconciliation is not going to happen. And God is a God of reconciliation, so he's always working. But he has to work in the perpetrator to get them to the place where they confess what they've done specifically, where they've acknowledged it, where they've asked for forgiveness, and they've changed over time, repentance. So you can forgive someone and never trust them again, right? Because yeah. it's, that's different than reconciliation. So don't be stupid, right? You can forgive them in order to be free, but that doesn't mean you put their child back into their care, you know, or whatever the, the perpetration was. You just don't automatically, you learn if trust is rebuilt, it's miraculous and it happens over time. So yeah. distinction between um, forgiveness and reconciliation, huge. All right. You started to say, I've written a bunch of other stuff, which is true. Well, by the way, I, <laughs> I, um, I remember after a doctor nearly left me paralyzed in an, accidental, an accident in a surgery, mm -hmm. uh, in the months that followed when I met with him, he said something to me, and my response even shocked me, but he said something like, Mark, this was an accident, and you're probably going to hate me. And I remember looking at him and I said, doctor, actually, I forgive you. Because you didn't do this on purpose and I understand. No. And, and uh, later I was meeting with an attorney to determine whether to sue that guy. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, yeah, I think you have a case. 
And I said, well, let me ask you this. And again, I don't know where this came from, short of just a divine whisper in my ear. I said to the attorney, so if I win this thing, will it take away my bitterness? And he goes, oh, no, that's something you have to deal with. So let me ask you a question. What if he did it on purpose? Would you have forgiven him? Now we're from our sponsor. <laughs> uh, you know what? If he had done it to me on purpose. See, you justified forgiveness because it was an accident. So much easier, I guess. This is a two-way street, you know? And it's like, yeah, that was so noble of you. And, and it was good. And it was right what you did. Um, it was a cover-up because you wouldn't even ask the question about bitterness if it had resolved it and uh, down the road. But the question is much more to the point when it's an enemy and they did it on purpose, mm -hmm. you know, then where's Jesus, right? And, um, and then I, where's... I think I, have some, I think I have some inner work I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Because yep. there, there, are, there are people that have done things on purpose that have hurt me that I need to deal with on the forgiveness level. And um, you have that power, Mark. You have that power to free yourself from those things. You know, it's not dependent on them. Yeah. You have that power. And, yeah. and that's the beauty of our participation in this. And, and I also think there are things I need to own so that there can be reconciliation in Come on. other Come on. areas of my life. Uh, yeah. Alyssa. Talk about other books with Paul. <laughs> tapped out. I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out. Um, Paul, talk to us a little bit about your newest book. Lies We Believe About God. Yes. Yeah. So it started out as a, as a Twitter feed. It started out with... Really? Things, yeah. Things you'll never hear God say. I was... Because people were always putting stuff, you know, this is what God says, this is the word of God and all this stuff. And I'm going like, so let's, let's look at negative space and see what happens. What, <laughs> what would God not say? Mm. Yeah. And as I worked on that, out come all these different things that God would not say. Um, God would not say, I'm disappointed in you. God would not say, I'm sorry you died. There's nothing I can do for you now. Death wins. Yeah, we won't mm. even go into that one. But... But um, then over time, when the publisher, they got a hold of the tweets and I was making the deal for Eve uh, with Simon and & Schuster and they wanted a two book deal. And they started looking at these things going like, uh, how about this? You know, we're really interested in this. So it evolved to become basically 28 lies we believe about God that are interconnected lies. And what's really crazy is that a couple theologian friends of mine, uh, Baxter Kruger and yeah, and Brad Jerzak and John McMurray. I mean, we, we came up with like 500 lies in about five minutes, you know, that we believe. <laughs> so, so distilling them down into pretty massively broad and it's done within storytelling. And um, so, and my detractors, it's great. My people, they, they're so predictable. It's like, finally, he's come out from behind fiction, you know, <laughs> he stopped hiding behind fiction. It's so great. And um but, you know, it's the, the book is just an invitation to a conversation that sort of addresses the paradigms that m make us nervous to talk about, you know, yeah. and some of them really apply deeply and some of them don't. But even if they don't apply, you'll find that they're intertwined with the ones that are bothering you. And, and it begins to raise up a whole bunch of really good questions.
and good yeah. questions are great companions. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, Paul, for our listeners that want to know more, want to read your books, how do they find you? Uh, if you go to WM for William, WMPaulYoung.com, that connects you to all the stuff I don't know how to do. WMPaulYoung.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So honored to be with you, Mark. So good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us new language to deal with. Thank you for giving me now what will probably be 11 years of inner work. (laughs) Uh, that I need to uh, face this nobility uh, narrative. Mm. Last thought, you talked about how God has used me in your life. And I want to tell you that he has never used me in your life. He has invited me to participate on the holy ground of your story, but he's never used me. This Mm. is a God who never uses anybody. Mm. You know, we would never say to our child or grandchild, I can't wait for you to grow up so that you can be a tool I can use. You know, so if we can't put it in the mouth of our own relationships with our own kids, we need to stop putting it in the mouth of God. Mm. And the part of the beauty of this is this is about participation, invitation and relationship, not about being used as tools Mm. because there is no relationship with a tool. And this is, and this is not a God who uses anyone. And like I say, the most precious relationships we have, we would never consider that language. Mm. And yet, is not our relationship with God the most precious relationship that we have? Well, then, thank you, Paul, for saying yes to my invitation. Yeah, thank you for participating. Absolutely honored to participate. Thank you. Peace. Blessings. Wow. Did you hear the wisdom Paul dropped at the end of the conversation? You know, I've often said things, you know, out of gratitude to say things like, you know, God really used you in my life. But Paul flipped that phrase upside down. He said, God didn't use me in your life like a tool. He invited me to participate on the holy ground of your story. We don't have relationships with tools. Ugh, deep stuff. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with William Paul Young. I'd also like it if you'd please help me thank our sponsor, Bob Dalton, the founder of Sackcloth and Ashes, by getting your very own beautiful blanket at sackclothandashes.com. You know, what I love about Bob is he was inspired to help those experiencing homelessness when his own mother, a hardworking single mom, found herself living on the streets in 2013. And because of his mom's story, Bob realized that not all choose to become homeless. Some people actually just need a second chance. For Bob, he began to call homeless shelters in his area to ask what they needed most, and they said blankets. And that's when he founded Sackcloth and Ashes. So every blanket that you purchase, they will donate one to a local homeless shelter. And if you use the code INSPIRINGGROWTH, you'll receive a 15% discount off your purchase. So go to sackclothandashes.com. Well, this ends today's Inspiring Growth Podcast. Please subscribe to hear more inspiring stories. And special thanks to Austin Fisher, yep, he's related, who seamlessly edited our hour-long conversation to a tight 35 minutes. Thanks, Austin. If you're a CEO who desires to grow as a leader and you want to see numeric growth in your company as well, go to inspiringgrowth.biz and click on our free personalized growth report. That's for CEOs or executive directors. And folks, I have found that the most growth is inspired 
by curiosity. Stay curious, folks, because as Paul Young said, good questions are great companions.